and hope, hopefully sharing the gospel with people that all depends upon how efficient we are in walking in the spirit, how efficient we are in reflecting upon the way we carry ourselves, the way we engage people, how our thought, process, our thought processes line up and orient themselves on a day-to-day basis. Am I getting a, a bit psychoanalytical, but it's very important to kind of know when we wake up every day that even in a general sense, we are to be viewing life from a missional standpoint. Any given moment, an opportunity may open up for us to share the gospel, and we would want to be ready. I mean, in a genuine, authentic way, not in some artificial way, but in a very genuine, authentic way. And and one of the ways to see to that occurring is when we are in a healthy community that can uh, constantly um, nudge us back into the center of our core value system, um, what we call our central organizing principle, where, where God is on the throne of our life, where Christ is the revelation, where our walk and our, our calling and our gifting and our persons are constantly being regulated by that remembrance. Who am I and what am I, what am I here for? And in a community of faith like we have, the goal is for us to learn how to collaborate efficiently in the mending of nets so that men and women who come into the sphere of the church can be blessed with uh, the resources of the gospel. But from time to time, like in any community, what's happening at Corinth is that they are already experiencing a dissolution of that organizing principle, that hierarchy of of God and man, God and Christ and man and woman, which is Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter First Corinthians chapter 11, that is the hierarchy of creation. And where we remove those categories from where they fit and work in terms of um, our matriculation up into the triune Godhead by virtue of Christ, or they're descending down by virtue of revelation and bestowment of gifts upon us, where that whole category gets messed up. We're like the Tower of Babel, in its brokenness, and we are subdivided into all kinds of categories and vulcanized in, in that co- conflict, uh, speaking in different tongues, languages, etc. You, you saw how Paul admonished them about that. What we want to do now is kind of pick up where Paul launches into a discourse around the superiority of the gospel. It seems like he needs to do this, so we're going to be picking up uh, at point number three in our outline that we had from uh, last Tuesday. Point number one, the open report of schism. Point number two, baptism as a sign of our unity and Christ's authority over our lives. That's where we kind of left off at on Tuesday. We unpacked that, how important baptism is as a witness of who we are in Christ and who Christ is for us. We're going to move naturally up out of baptism into the gospel because baptism is a symbol of what the gospel did in bringing us into new new life in Christ. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to open in a word of prayer. And then we're going to unpack his argument and uh, look at a few things I think are important that will get us into chapter two and prepare us for chapter two and three next week. Amen. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter one, I want us to start over at verse 18. And I'm going to be just walking through what uh, is really our three Subpoints in verse uh, in point number three, and then hopefully we can carry it over into point number four tonight. And of course, 
Um, it may stimulate some questions and I'll be glad for us to engage in them as well if they come up. So you look at verse 18. Verse 18 starts off with a nice little clause for for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So what Paul is doing now is he's moving away from his argument that his uh, baptizing many of the people at Corinth was an ancillary role that comes with preaching the gospel. It's true. It has to be done. We talked about that on Tuesday. There is not an either or. You don't either preach the gospel or baptize people. It's a what? Both and. You preach the gospel and you baptize. That's inherent in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. What, what Paul was stating was the Corinthians had gotten so self-centered and so balkanized that they thought that they could divide Christ into categories and put some people in Christ's group and others in Paul's group and others in Apollos' group and others yet in Silas and Peter and, and et cetera. That's what we saw in chapter three. We'll pick that up again next time. And what Paul argued was that there is a unity in Christ that is indicated in our baptism that forbids us to raise anyone to the level of Christ over our life so that we become the disciples of another man. That cannot happen when you properly understand baptism as a symbol of the authority, exclusive authority of Christ and our unity in him. I think you guys remember this is in Matthew chapter 22. You don't have to go there. But Jesus said, call no man on earth your father and call no man your master. For you have one father and you have one master. This is what we mean by a chief organizing principle when it comes to the hierarchy of authority in the universe. God is our father and Christ is our master. And remember what he said in Matthew 22. I hope you didn't forget. He says, and you all are brethren. So there's an equality of uh, relationship between the people of God at the horizontal level, in spite of the fact that we may have offices. There may be pastors, there may be elders, there may be deacons, there may be uh, people with different gifts, there may be prophets, there may be teachers, etc., as we have in Ephesians 4. And they serve to edify the body, but the persons themselves are no better and no higher than you. This is what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 3. Who is Paul and who is Apollos except ministers by which the word of God is brought to you? We are all God's cultivated field and we're all God's servants. So that that equality of uh, persons is something that Paul is once again asserting. When you get baptized, you're getting baptized into a common faith with common brethren and a koinonia, a fellowship of absolute equality. That means we make sure that as much as we may honor leaders, and you should, you never put them on a pedestal where they have this kind of tiered hierarchy. Because this goes on in almost any kind of community uh, unlawfully. And this is what Paul is getting at. So once he begins to lay out, hey, we're all brethren at that level, 
he then begins to move over into and make an emphasis around the nature of the gospel that brought them into that unity and under Christ's authority. And it's called the preaching of the gospel. I picked up on that on Tuesday and I wanted to call your attention to the uh, distinctives in there. And it's important, the instrumentality of the preaching and the essential content of the preaching and the content having to be what we would call the gospel proper. And uh, the instrumentality is the euangelion, um, and that would be the, the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation, or what we call the evangel. That's how we say it in English, the evangel. The instrumental means is evangelism. Go into all the world and preach, evangelize. The essential content of the gospel is where Paul is moving now, meaning if you evangelize somebody properly, you're going to bring them the right message. It's going to be the right message. And this is what Paul is about to argue. He says, for the preaching of the cross. Do you see that? The staros, the staros, for the preaching of the staros. Now we're getting to content, aren't we? We're getting the content because the essential content of the gospel is that, as you're going to see in chapter two, Christ died for our what? Those are the five words of understanding that Paul talked about in first Corinthians 14. I'd rather speak five words of understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. I'd rather say five literal words that sum up the essence of of what it means to experience the power of God than to be babbling in all kinds of languages in an incoherent way that only creates more confusion. That's what the essence of the gospel is. So when we talk about the essential content of the gospel, we're saying that you and I are expecting a narrative that comes from God about God that actually can change our life. We are expecting a narrative. I'm again bleeding you over to tomorrow for many of us. We're expecting a narrative that comes from God that has the capacity to bring us into God's world, into God's narrative, into God's story. Right. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is the most beautiful message in the universe. But there still needs to be an effect. Effective power, we call that an efficacious work, an effective power to make the gospel do what the gospel says it can do in our lives. That's a third category that's only inherent in our text by the word. It is the power of God, the dunamis, the dunamis. That's the term you can use, the dunamis. So we have the evangel, uh, the evangel the euangelion, and then we have the content, the staros, the staros, the cross, because the cross means something. Then we have the dunamis, the dunamis, the power. So that triad has to work to bring men in, men and women into several things I want to talk about tonight that Paul is going to lay out. What Paul is about to talk about is how the gospel, when it comes with the proper content, and when it's accompanied by the spirit of the living God, it does something for the person of raising them up out of and removing them from that space 
of chaos and confusion and Babylonian multitudinous where you and I are trapped by different gods and different systems and different demons and different markers of the horizontal system that is filled with chaos. In other words, the spirit of God brings you up out of chaos into order. Did that make some sense? The spirit of God brings you up out of chaos into order. I could do an anecdote, but I don't want to for time's sake, but you, you should all be able to do it. Because what happens is, if the gospel is God's story, and God's story invades your life as it says it can and does, then God's story becomes your story, and your story now merges with God's story, and the two stories overlap. Does that make some sense? And God's story begins to shape your story, bring you into his narrative, and then you begin to fellowship with God in a common story. It's a common story. That is the paradigm of Christ and the church. And the twain become what? One flesh. And that's a complete process right there. It's not a snapshot event. It's not punctiliar. (laughs) It's not easy. The twain becoming one flesh. Nothing easy about it, uh, but it's certain in Christ. So for the believer, you and I are coming to Christ. You guys know that, right? We have come by an essentia of faith in our heart, but we are still on our way to him by virtue of sanctification and life. We will not ultimately arrive face to face until the resurrection of our bodies and we are united in that celestial marriage. Does that make sense? It's really really important for you to get that because, again, I'm going to argue tomorrow as we begin to work through the real difficulties and challenges in marriages today has everything to do with the way our society is pressing in on us and demanding that we see ourselves differently than God sees us. I'm really going to I'm going to press that home very hard over the next three weeks that if you and I are not cognitive of the pressures without and the inclinations within, we will find ourselves defining ourselves in ways that does not correspond with what God wants for us. And that's going to make it hard in the context of not only um, finding a, a spouse in the context of five categories we're going to be dealing with tomorrow. Communication, uh, collaboration, cooperation, and cultivation. Those are five categories we're going to deal with. Communication, collaboration, cooperation, cultivation. Four categories. Those four categories are going to be critical to us asking, do we have two people that are able to share the same, their individuated stories in one group story. Can we bring our stories together? This is what we, what we would call in uh, diagrammatics a, uh, a Venn diagram. Does anybody know what a Venn diagram is? So when you understand a Venn diagram, you understand that we're dealing with three categories of circles. The individual circle of the one, the individual circle of the other, and then a grander circle that bridges those two circles together. Did that come home? Yeah. All right, good. Because that, that, in a lot of ways, that's how we are too. Okay, with God. So um, that that being stated, we're going to be doing some really good journeys. I mean, really, really, we're going to be going deep and and enjoying it. It's not going to be so hard. It might be painful, but it won't be hard. (laughs) So as we um, 
as we look here, what I want to touch on is the way Paul breaks this down. I want to be as simple as I can, but we're going to have to be a little nuanced because that's the way he is. So he says in verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing. See that phrase? So what he's about to do is go into a set of binaries to them. That's one category to them. And then he's going to say, but to who? Us. That's another category. All right. So that's that's just a device that Paul is using. He's getting ready to create a binary because in this binary, he's going to show how for some the gospel works. For others, it doesn't. Right. And this is what I was saying also on Tuesday. And I've shared this with us before. Um, We have to understand truth in terms of how God operates mediatorially and sovereignly. Meaning, just because a person will hear biblical truth doesn't mean that biblical truth is going to change their life. Right. Hearing truth is not equal to life changing. Right. So if that is true and it's obviously true, uh, what we're looking at are methodologies that employ several mechanisms that are conditional to an outcome a methodology that employs several mechanisms that's conditional to an outcome. For instance, I mean, let's work it through. What I said is what I said, I think is clear enough. If you already understand God's sovereign, do you know he's sovereign? Okay, good. Now y'all religious folk, y'all like that word sovereign. There it is. God's sovereign. And so what that obviously means is that outcomes are not a surprise to God. And ultimately, all outcomes will fit in a set of categories that God has preconditioned for them to sit in. They will sit in a set of categories that God has preconditioned. There are some people that are going to be saved. There are some people who are not going to be saved. There are some people who are going to hear and believe. And there are some people who will hear and never believe. All of that comes within the auspices of the preaching of the gospel. You know that. For the kingdom of God is like unto a man who sowed seed. Some fell on the wayside, others on shallow ground, others on thorny ground, and some on good ground. That's the nature of the kingdom. So what God is saying is you got to expect all kinds of reactions to the gospel. And not all the reactions are going to be positive and not all the reactions are going to be salvific. And therefore, the Christian has to grow up. Don't they? So what Jesus said in Matthew 13 when he said that was this. I need you to understand that when you get out there and be excited for me and share the gospel with folks, everybody's not going to be as excited as you. Whoa. So we're going to be drilling down into this tomorrow, too. Right. Because here we are. We're often conditioning our own psychological and emotional makeup on the grounds of outcomes. We're often, we are, we are often determining whether I'm going to be happy if things go my way or not. Did that come home? Yeah. Right. And that only works for adolescents. It works for children because that's part of the fantasy world of naive expectation. For grown people, here's what we come to understand. We don't get to always have our way. Did that make some sense? 
Now, what's important about that is because if we learn that everything is not going to go our way, then we can avoid trying to control things and submit to a much wiser set of protocols that are really more rooted in management. Did that make some sense? Again, that's what we're going to be drilling down into tomorrow, because where we get into trouble with marriages is that marriages operate out of serendipitous mysteries as well. I'm not trying to be kind with the word serendipitous mystery, just in case you didn't know. There are serendipitous mysteries going on with, with marriage. And, um, and a lot of times we're trying to control things. And we come to discover the more we try to control it, the more we what? Mess it up. See, somebody's talking like they know. <laughs> and, um, and so what the believer comes to recognize when he's operating out of that chief organizing principle, which is what Jesus taught in Matthew eleven twenty five, He says, Lord, you have chose to hide these things from the wise and the prudent. This is what Paul getting ready to teach. And you have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. You see what Jesus just did? He acquiesced to the reality that God's going to do what God's going to do. And his role is not to even query as to whether it's right or wrong or even whether or not he likes it. What he said was God's in control. And my job is to simply manage that sphere of influence that I have and let the father be the father. Now, I'll keep you sane in a world that's actually doing a bunch of things that are not good. That'll keep you sane in a world. So one of the reasons why people have mental problems is because they want to control more than they can. I'm going to leave that there for right now and go back. Okay, I'm going to show you what what we're dealing with now in our text, which is absolutely Beautiful. So go back to uh, first Corinthians chapter two. I want to try to drill down into Paul's argument a little bit. I'm hoping I can get through these three sub points. Verse 20, verse 19. So now what Paul says is, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Do you see that? All right. Let's work with that a little bit. This comes after Paul gives us a binary of objective reality concerning two kinds of outcomes. He just said some folk going to be saved and some folk are going to perish. And that's the way it is. Now, here's the text that explains what God is up to. It's Isaiah chapter 29. And we're going to start at verse 13. I'm going through verse 16. That's going to be our pointer text. And I'm going to make application to where we are because this is dealing with where you and I are today. See if I can help us. So first of all, isn't that an amazing thing? On the premise of the gospel will be preached, some will believe, others won't. And then God is saying, now here's the reason why that's going to happen. And then he begins to explain his sovereign determination for some Believing in some not. Here it is. Now, you have heard these verses before because they not only are quoted in Isaiah, but they're quoted in the book of Acts by the man who's quoting him now. Because what Paul did was constantly study the scriptures and God was opening his eyes and Paul was able to map 
the Old Testament on to what was going on in his own time, which is what I'm trying to do. You read it and you go, that's what's happening now. Does that make some sense? All right. So here, listen to what Paul says. God says in the mouth of Isaiah. So here's what Isaiah says. Wherefore, the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips, they do honor me. But have what? Removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the what? That's what we are in First Corinthians. Are we not there? I am a Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of this person, I am that person. So God gives us insight into the movements of the soul away from the supremacy of, of God and the rule of Christ to other illuminaries being their, their head. Did that come home? Other illuminaries now, I am of. When you go, I am of, that illuminary is your God. He's your master. He's your father. And God says, these have removed their hearts far from me. Now, also now what this means, I love this. I love this. I thank God for Paul. What Paul did was show how a text that was written 750 years before Jesus came would apply to the people that Paul was of, the Jewish people. And how that that passage would fulfill itself in the days of Messiah and in the days of Paul. And that what God is demonstrating is the Jews just kept coming to church. They kept coming to church, but their heart was going somewhere else. So bodily, they were showing up in formation, but they were rejecting the information. So if we operate out of that triad I taught you. Formation leads necessarily to information. Information should, if all of the other mechanisms are working, lead to what? Transformation. We know it does because some people are being saved. I'm going to go back to that verse in a little bit. I think I got you guys now. So notice what Paul says. With their mouth, they do honor me. And didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 15? Jesus said it in Matthew 15. He says, these folks are honoring God with their lips, but their heart is way over in Rome way over in the Greek culture, way over in secularism, in mysticism, in paganism. All of these different gods are sitting on their heart. But have removed their heart far from me and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men. So out of the abundance of the heart that the what? Right. So when a man or a woman is inclined to have a false idol governing their soul, governing their thinking, governing your mind, ultimately that is going to be the chief organizing principle that leads their life. They're going to be making choices in relationship to that God, will they not? They can't help it. It's axiomatic, right? To whom you yield yourself members to, to them you will serve, Romans chapter 6, verse 13 or so. Now, notice what it says in verse 14, because this is getting ready to come to America now, just in case it hasn't. Here it comes. Therefore... Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work, work, right? Now, I want you to catch this. God is going to move on the basis of their movement. We saw their movement in verse 13. Their hearts were far from God. Did you see the movement? God says, therefore, I am going to do a work. Since they did a work, I'm going to do a work. Since they moved, I'm getting ready to move. I really want to press that home to you to help you get the doctrine of sovereignty right and overcome fatalistic determination 
uh, determinism because that's a fallacy of understanding. God doesn't arbitrary act. He acts in relationship to our actions towards him because we are humanly responsible. Does that make some sense? The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are co-axioms that work together and God responds accordingly. Therefore, behold, I will do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a what? Wonder. <clears throat> For the wisdom of their wise men shall what? And the understanding of their prudent men shall be what? I'm not going to drill down too deep into that, but I love it. So their wisdom is going to perish. Their understanding is going to be hid. God's now speaking to the way he will impact their mind and their heart in the area of decision making. I'm going to say it again and I'm going to leave it there. God is now speaking to how he as the spirit of all flesh, he's the God of all flesh. He's the father of spirits. He can invade anyone's heart and mind as he wants to. And he says in the Proverbs, the hearts of the kings are in the hand of the Lord and he turns them any which way he wants. Is that what it says? Stay with me. Now, having already seen the prerequisites to God's acting, we can say with confidence that God does not act arbitrarily. Having just learned that God is responding to their reaction, God's response is a consequence of their actions. So when he moves in judgment, he's not being arbitrary, he's being righteous. Did that come home? He's not being arbitrary. All right, so some Christians not knowing how to follow the connection between the axiom of God's sovereignty and human responsibility will misrepresent God often as a monster, as a kind of uh, uh, arbitrator of just exploits of its power when God has never been like that. Never been like that in any of the revelation of scripture. He does not, he will not, ever exercise arbitrary judgment in a way in which human beings will be righteous in saying God is just a monster. It won't ever happen. Won't ever happen. God will always prove that he was just in his actions and they will be based upon the precepts that he has given mankind to walk in. In other words, no human being will stand before God and say, I didn't know. It's important for you to know that, okay? God doesn't play games. He doesn't, he doesn't operate in such depths of mysteries that his invasion to demolish you is a disadvantage to you. It will always be the consequence of the quid pro quo. You violate precept, you open yourself up to the justice of God. Does that make sense? Right, okay. so here, notice what he says. The wisdom of their wise men shall what? That's important. And the understanding of their prudent men shall be what? That's the culture I live in. That's where I live right now. Right now, I live in a culture where men have no wisdom in terms of the disarray and dissolution of society. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please understand this. I'm not just kind of like taking an opportunity to just make a correlation from there to here. What I am doing is what the word of God always does. It always holds men accountable for their actions and it holds them accountable at the level of government. Does God raise up kings? Does he raise up nobles? Does he raise up princes? Has he ordained government? 
from the top to the bottom. And therefore, everyone operating out of a position of authority has to reckon with a sovereign God. And when you have the eclectic governmental system set up like we do in America, and we have now for at least 150 years departed from God, we have removed our hearts far from him. Okay, so I'm I'm just being prophetic for a moment because you need to be able to see it. As it was with Israel, so it is with America. As it was with Israel, so it is with us. Our leaders are so arrogantly pompous and vacuous that they can hold Senate and council without even praying to God. When our whole jurisprudence was predicated upon a Judeo-Christian set of norms when it comes to our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and even our process of Congress, how we gather together. They gather together in the name of God. They gather together with scripture as the authority for their guidance. That's how they did it. That's how they did it. And it's over with now. I heard a congressman uh, two months ago when a brother was saying, hey, listen, the Bible says, and that congressman stood up and said, hey, look, in here, the Bible doesn't go. This is the chambers of Congress. In here, the Bible doesn't go. So now, I can see the perishing of their wisdom, can you? I can see, I can see the, the blinding of the prudent, can you? I want to keep going. I want to drill down a little bit. I'm just letting you know that if we don't map truth onto where we are, we're going to set our children up at a disadvantage when it's their turn because things are getting darker every day and our children have to have a light that they can sufficiently navigate through. Where, what kind of times are we living in? We are living in very, very bad times, as was the case with Paul. If you guys remember, I told you where Paul is, is where the stone that was cut out without hands is crushing the feet of the whole gargantuan Babylonian God that was lifted up. Didn't I tell you that? So the apostles are living in that era where the, um, where the government is coming down. So capture that optic. Capture that optic. The Roman Empire is coming down and the Roman Empire is coming down in a larger macro model of what Jesus said. See all these buildings, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. There's a parallel there because the Roman Empire was stately. It had it had temples everywhere, too, just like Israel had its capital as the temple. So as Rome is falling, guess what? Mystery Babylon is falling. Who is Mystery Babylon? Israel, the great whore. You guys know this. So we see it coming down and it's coming down prophetically by the words of Jesus, by the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, hey, the axe is laid to the tree. The brother's here now. He's talking about Christ. He said, the axe is laid to the tree. You don't even hear the axe is chopping at the roots. That tree is already starting to tumble. He's talking about Israel. And I'm saying that's where you and I are today. And you need to know that we are tumbling. If we could look deeply into the nature of the policies of our government and see their protocols in erecting these policies and forcing them on us, we would see that they're not wise. Now, I got one more thing to say about it as I go on. It's not hard to discover 
when dignitaries and rulers are not wise. You don't have to act like that's some bizarre anomaly. No, it's quite common for rulers to be fools. It's quite common. Read your Bible carefully. Nero was a fool. Caligula was a fool. Okay? They're, they're fools. We've had fools. I've been scratching my head ever since I was 17 years old because, no, I was 13 years old. Because the first time my head turned to the left and began to consider the uh, leader of our country, which we call the what? President. I'm looking up at a man who says, I don't lie. I don't lie. He's so stupid, he couldn't even cut the camera off in the White House, uh, cut the radio off in the White House. They're recording him, right? God will take away the wisdom and he will destroy their prudence and he will leave the recorder on so that we can all come to discover that we elected a fool. When you listen to what he said on those tapes, it's embarrassing. And almost every president has been caught on tape. Do you hear me? So they, they, I'm getting ready to go there. If we have time, I'm going there. Our leaders know how to appear wise. They have a power operating with them that they can put off an appearance of dignity and, and decorum and, and some kind of insight and wisdom. They know how to play the game well. It's demonic. I can, uh, uh, I can assert that, okay? It takes a lot of energy to get up there when you know you are a fool and pretend to be wise. Of course, you got a bunch of people managing you and all kind of scripts being read. But this also speaks to what we're about to get into, the difference between a false gospel and the true gospel. That's what we're about to get into, okay? Because our world is preaching a gospel too. And people are buying it. Because as the leaders are, so are the people. All right, let's keep going. So notice what it says in verse 14. Isn't this what Paul said in Acts chapter 13? When he was preaching to the Jews and he had the Gentiles with him and he finally said to the Jews, listen, you have proven yourself unworthy of eternal life. From henceforth, we go to the Gentiles and the Gentiles were super happy about this. Okay, Acts chapter 13. Let's see. Start at verse 42. I'm going to make my way back. I, I think I got a little time. Start at verse 42. And when the Jews were going out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Do you see it? So the, Gent- the Jews have rejected the gospel. The Gentiles were wide open to it. That's going back to our text. The gospel is to some who are perishing foolishness. To others, it's the power of God and the salvation. Do you see that? Guess what's happening right here? A new nation is being started. A new country is being started. A Christian nation is being started right here. Open your eyes to it. Can you see it? Can you see the stone cut out without hands, bringing down the Roman Empire and one person at a time, bringing them into the kingdom of God where Jesus says, I will build my, can you see it? Are y'all keeping up with me so I can keep going? These are macro promises. They're very clear. So as the Roman Empire is coming down, guess what? Christ's church is being built. And the significant constituent components to it are Gentiles. And these Gentiles are loving what they hear. Because that's the nature of the gospel. That's what it does. We'll get there. Uh, uh, go back to uh, chapter 
uh, 29, verse 14. I got one more verse I want to pull up. This is the one I deal with. <laughs> I've been dealing with for. Ah, I guess now 20 years. I've been on the radio for 20 years. Right. And every. Every set of elections, I bring this text up and I talk about what we are. I want you to hear this. Verse 15. Notice verse 15. 29, Isaiah 29, 15. Watch this. This is Isaiah 29, 15, ma'am. <clears throat> so, so I want you to watch how this works. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. <clears throat> These are your political leaders. This was national Israel. This is your political leaders. Your political leaders play bait and switch. They never tell us the truth. They always fabricate lies. Woe unto those that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the what? Do you believe it? And they say, who seeth us? Now, is not God's judgment on them now? Right. Because if they assume that they can do evil, malevolent policies behind closed doors and God doesn't see them, the judgment of God is already on them. God has hidden wisdom from them. Here's the next line. Who seeth us and who knows? Now, this is the next verse, because this verse is going to drill down right into where you and I are. Are you ready? This is 21st century Western American Bay Area human expression across the collective of its defiance and rebellion against the God that made them. This is 21st century Western American local Bay Area collective expression, particularly of our leaders, in rejection of the God that made them. Did that come home? Did that, is that good? Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure you guys get it. I want to make sure you understand that what this text is saying, you see every day. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. Do you see it? All right. So now if you know Jeremiah 18, then you know God taught Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. I'm going to show you how sovereign I am. Remember that? You take the clay and you watch the potter make a pot. And in that potter's mind, if that pot is flawed, he takes it and dashes it over in the corner and starts again. He has a right to do that. What God is saying is when men and women think that they can tell God who they are, what they are, how they are. God esteems that as a pot that's flawed that he's going to take and just throw in the corner and start all over. He's sovereign. Does that make some sense? All right. So now watch this. It shall be esteemed as the potter's clay for shall the work say of him that made it. He did not make me. Is that where we are? We've been here for 20 years. We've been here for 20 years. I've been sirening this for 20 years on the radio for 20 years. While we were fighting the issue of uh, um, same-sex marriage, way before that, we were fighting this issue of same-sex marriage. We were fighting the issue of homosexuality not being in a line with God's will. 
That's what we were fighting. We were fighting because it was pushing into our culture and it was pushing into our churches and it had taken a foothold in the churches in the early 2000s, asserting that homosexuality is a natural disposition of human beings. It is organic and it must not be seen as sin. And of course, I'm going to talk about it Monday because the Pope just came out and said officially that homosexuality is organic and natural and should not be seen as sin or criminal. Right. So you'll hear me talk about it. now. Uh, but just notice for the work for shall the work say of him that made it. He made me not or shall the thing framed. Now, that is a potter's phraseology that says you and I were framed. God made us. Notice that. Notice what it says. He made me not or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it. He doesn't have any understanding. Now, now, here's really where the battle is, and I want to go on. Here's where the battle is. Here's where the battle is. The battle is not in the church. The battle is not with Christians. They don't seem to do a great job of fighting these propositional debates. The not, government is not scared of Christians. They're certainly not scared of churches. They're scared of this book. Got it? This is the problem. It is already written. It's already written. I want you to get that. It's already written. It's important for you to get that. See, it's already written. God has already spoken. He's given us creation. He's given us redemption. He's given us government. He's given us sociology. He's given us biology. He's given us anthropology. He's given us eschatology. He's given us the creases uh, doctrine of the consequences of our actions. It's appointed unto men once to die. After this, the judgment. He's given us government hierarchy. All of it is laid out in the word of God. Did that make some sense, y'all? Watch this. So if a man or a woman wants to get their life right, they need to read the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to give clarity on it. Because this is how you're redeemed out of darkness into light. You're not necessarily redeemed out of darkness into light in a church. You're not necessarily redeemed out of darkness into light by a Christian. Because today Christians don't know their Bibles that well. They can't give you the hierarchy in a clear way as to be the vehicle by which the heavens open and you see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, mankind, woman with mankind, and then government from family to the society, to the state, to the nation. You can't see that without sound doctrine being taught. So you got people all over the map teaching all kind of stuff from the Bible and it doesn't have a chief organizing principle. You don't get the big picture. This is what we call a biblical worldview. When a man or a woman is wanting to be a representative of God, they got to get their biblical worldview down. I'm going to tell you a brother that's killing it right now, and I'm honored to know him, and that's Vody Bakum. Right? He's killing it. All things Vody. Right now, all things Vody. Okay, because what I'm saying is, you only got a few cats that do what I do, and Vody's one of them. People like to peel off little specialties in the church. When a, when a preacher is supposed to be apologetic and have a worldview that encompasses everything that God made. So like if God has dominion over everything, shouldn't God have something to say about everything? All things Vody. 
All things voted. If you want to get your if you want to hone your biblical worldview, if you want to make sure you can handle your sword in a way that's adequate to addressing the fundamental chaos and deconstruction going on. All things voted. OK, all things are just letting you know a bunch of old school apologetics that I can you, you recommend. But today, Vody is getting at it. I'm gl- glad God raised him up, healed his heart because he was about to die on us. <laughs> and and j- God just gave him another win and he's getting at it and he's articulate and he's clear and he's solid in the gospel. He has great eschatology and he has a great perspective on what's going on. So just putting that out there to you because he's doing the same thing that I'm doing. <clears throat> We see this going on today in our society. And this is what Paul is talking about. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians now. Let me see if I can just get through these three subpoints categorically. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse uh, 21 and 22. So now that we've looked at verse 20 and we've seen the historical context with the Jewish people in the days of Christ, we saw its application in the first century in the days of the apostle, Acts 13. Now we're seeing it in our day, right? So there's nothing new under the sun. So again, I want to go back to the binary, just in case you guys are tired from being Friday, from it being Friday, to them and to who? All right, those are the two categories. To them that are what? Perishing. Look at the text. It's in your Bible. You should know it by heart. For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing. You got that? So I want I want you to capture that with me for a moment. So I'm going to do a little bit more exegesis and then we'll run a bit. So the what Paul is saying is when the gospel is preached, there are, people are in a certain condition. It's a present indicative for the preaching of the gospel is to them that are presently perishing. That's the way I want you to get it. That's the grammar. They are in a state of perishing. Now, he's. It indicated why in the subsequent verse, when he says he will take away the wisdom of the wise, he will bring to naught the wisdom of the the understanding of the foolish. So once God removes wisdom, once he takes away prudence, they are in a state of what? Perishing. Now we're getting ready to go down into it for a moment. But then there's another group, he says, who are hearing the gospel as well, and they are in the process of being saved. That's exactly what it is. So, but to us who are being what? Rescued, healed, made whole, preach. Because that's what Soter is. That's what Soter is. Soter is the doctrine of salvation that constitutes rescuing sick, broken, dead, hellbound sinners. And not only rescuing them in total, but then doing the medicament work of healing them healing them in order to build them up and strengthen them so that they can go on out and do the work too. Does that make some sense? It's important. I've been teaching that for a long time, trying to sip it in there to you to understand the concept of salvation, not in some sterile term, but in this rich, deep, subjective, powerful, transformational way. Every one of us who was dead, the gospel had to make us alive. 
Every one of us was bound. The gospel had to set us free. Every one of us was weak. The gospel has to make you strong. Every one of us was sick. The gospel has to heal you. Every one of us was blind. The gospel has to open your eyes. So the gospel has to bring about a radical work in your life. This is what the word radical means from the inside out. And it's a lifelong process. Am I making some sense? It's a lifelong process. But he who has begun a good work in you shall perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Right. So it is a sustained work that I don't want to get into that that parentheses. But there's a lot of ups and downs in that. It still maintains this continuity of optimism and the outcome will be that we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. Does that make sense? So we got to we got to understand the struggle, but we got we can also be confident. So notice what he says in verse 22. I want to run through this almost there. Okay, no, go back to verse 21. I want to see something there. Here it is. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now, do you see that line? So now we're playing paradoxes of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. If you were developing an outline, that's what you would do. You would make a column for God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. You guys got that? All right. So you've you got worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. The world by wisdom, the cosmos by wisdom. Wisdom here is Sophia. OK. And then Theos Sophia. Right. God's Sophia and the world Sophia. Now, Sophia is a play on terms by the apostle because we're already in the third to fourth leg of prominent Greek philosophers. And I talked to you about that on Friday. So we're not dealing with a bunch of people who are not completely devoted to philosophy. When you're talking about um, Aristotle's, when you're talking about Plato, when you're talking about Socrates, when you're talking about Philo and, and the whole Greek culture at that time was a platonically framed culture. They saw the world through a platonic framework. OK, so these were the underlying suppositions. This is true in any culture. What I love about what Paul is doing here. Paul is going after their gods. That's what he's doing right now. He's going after the big dogs that frame the way people were thinking at the time. Like we got that going on in America. See, time is moving really quick. Time is moving quick because we could talk about it. We, nobody operates in a vacuum. Everybody is operating out of a worldview. Either one that they have weaved out for themselves or one that they have borrowed from the culture. And it's a little bit of both most of the time, but it's largely that you and I have adopted what the culture gives us as a lens for understanding our world. It's called traditions. This is the paradisios, paradoxes, okay? Traditions are what you are supposed to get from your parents, and your parents are to tell you how things work and how the world works and how to view the world. And then when you become a society, this is what we're going to learn about tomorrow, why, why believers need to understand the pressures of conformity by the world. When you're talking about being married, you have to know whether or not you're insulated from it in such a way as to not bring it into the marriage and, and, uh, and abort the process of the two becoming one because the world can come in and do that. Are you hearing me? It can do that because you and I are malleable. We're malleable so, because we're products of the culture. <clears throat> And some of us are more products of the culture than others. And some of us are not as aware of how <clears throat> influenced and moved we are by the culture, even though we're Christian. So here's what's going on. You got a wisdom of the world and you got a wisdom of God, don't you? All right. 
You and I got to know both of them. We got to know them both. You got to know them both because remember, your job is to try to reach some of those that are still abiding in the wisdom of the world. Okay, that's why Paul said, I become all things to all men, that if by any means I can win some, he wants to be able to have a conversation, a dialogue, a discourse, a noble debate, a conversation, a dialogue, a discourse, a noble debate. That's why he looked every opportunity he could. He shared the gospel with. So he just wanted to listen. Ah, I see where their emphasis is now. He was taught very well. He understood Stoicism. He understood Epicureanism. He understood Libertinism. He understood Hebrew theology. He understood the secular philosophies of of his time. And good apologetics in my day do too. This is why I'm telling you to listen to certain men who are already disciplined in these things because we know the seeds of the heresies that have blossomed into the expressions of society that are going on today. All right, very important. So, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, what? Knew not God. Right. So there, again, is a principle of negation that God is warning about. If a man or a woman is trusting in the wisdom of the world, it means that they don't know God. If a man or a woman is operating on the pedestal or the foundation of the world's wisdom, it means that they don't know the God that created the world. Does that make some sense? I just want you to know that. So at some, <clears throat> they can be the nicest people in the world. They can be nicer than your pastor. Your pastor's not that nice. They can be really nice. And, and I'm just letting you know, they can be cool, everything. Have all kinds of skill sets. You, could, you and I could, uh, we could be envious of them. They can be wealthy. They can be funny. They could be brilliant in the Imago day, less the spirit of God in so many categories. Do you believe that? Yes. Let me drill that down again to you. God is amazing in how he can use the saved and the unsaved. I'm happy about it. I'm happy about it. Here's what you don't want to do. This is where we try to overcome faulty bifurcations at grace. That's another term. If you don't know what it means, it means false categories. <clears throat> um, the world all bad. Nothing about the world is good, not even worth paying attention to. That's unbiblical. You don't ever do that. Because the world is still the byproduct of a God that created it. With many vestiges of God's nature, God's character, and God's gifts applied to them in their non-redemptive state. Did that make some sense? In fact, you can learn a lot of things from the unbeliever. This is where you overcome becoming a cult because a cult is deluded into thinking that it can operate as a silo separated from the world by the gospel alone, as if somehow they are the pantheon of knowledge. Right. So what God had already said about you and me is that we're dumb sheep. That's what he's getting ready to teach us in a moment. Not many wise, not many noble. What that means is most of us didn't go to school and gain the breadth of knowledge and disciplines across all of these different systems so that we have a real good handle on all of the nuances of information that will constitute a well-rounded life. We're not scholars. And so we actually don't even know what we don't know. Be humble. (laughs) Come on, Christian. Because what happens... Well, what, what I am asserting, 
which Paul is about to um, help us get, is that um, what we don't want to do is act as if we have been right all the way throughout church history because the church is not. The church has overreached many times. The church has exceeded its boundaries of information and expertise. I'll tell you one area where we messed up and it shows up today. Are you ready? We messed up in the early church around the area of the soter in the capacity of healing. So we'll get to that more fully when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But what we messed up is we did not understand how to integrate science with theology and the area of medicine. That'll come home. That'll come home. And then what we did was played witch doctor and guru as both the Catholic Church, Orthodox Church, and a bunch of uh, mystic Christians that started their own cults and, and they try to lay hands on people and pour oil on them and, and all that stuff that goes on, right? Only proving that they failed to recognize that God had already accessed us by the spirit of wisdom to be able to see how natural organisms work homeopathic medicines in conjunction with prayer and other things so that they are collaborative and not in conflict. Did that make some sense? It's very important. So I'm just letting you know what we have to do as Christians is make sure that we are not defending something that's not defendable. You got, you see what I'm saying? Like the solution is really um, a correspondence with the good things of our world with the good things of God as a hierarchy over them to bless them because God has given them those blessings anyway. God blessed Esau. He blessed Esau. Do you understand that? God blessed Ishmael. Sorry, he blessed Ishmael. God blessed crazy Cain. I'm sorry. You can act a fool all you want to, but God is sovereign over them both. And what we're doing while we're going through the wilderness, which is what I love, you guys will pick up on it if you you like reading your Bible. God will say, hey, leave leave the Edomites alone. Leave the Esauites alone. Leave this nation alone. Leave that nation alone. I got them there for a purpose. So you don't go to fighting against everybody because they don't have a direct beeline to faith in Christ. God's running it all. Is he running it all? He's running it all in such a way when he uses Solomon to build a temple. I don't know why I'm going this way, but it may help you. Solomon couldn't get that temple built without Hiram. Without the pagan kings that God used to scaffold all of the bronze and the, the stones and the rock quarries all around the world. He let the Gentiles do all of the heavy lifting. And then he allowed Solomon to be such a wise king to enter into relationship with these pagan kings that these pagan kings were willing to give Solomon whatever he needed. See how God works? And so you and I are going to live and die, hopefully, with some unsaved people in our life who will never come to Christ. And they'll be a blessing to us and we'll be a blessing to them. Did it make some sense? Good. And you'll want them saved and you'll be praying for them. And you won't know if they're lost or not. You know, unless, of course, you get a chance to go see them, hear them breathe their last breath. And they say to you, I don't believe you're God. That would be a tragedy. But frequently what it is, is that you're in a relationship with an unsaved person or ambiguously, you know, uh, not knowing where they are. 
and then they die on you. And I've already told you, if you're smart enough to know, leave room for God to be God when people are dying. Right. Because if God allowed you to be in that person's life for 20, 30 years and y'all been partners and cool and all that, and they had to put up with you preaching to them because they loved you. That means God was doing something beyond you and me in their hearts with the gospel anyway. Is that true? And, and, you know, like I told you, unless we're little children, our job is to manage our domain. It's not to control it. We can't tell God what to do. We're just supposed to manage our domain. And we're supposed to love them sincerely. And when they die, we just are to grieve for having lost a really good friend. That makes sense, right? Right. Overcome bigotry. I remember, I remember this many, many years ago. Bigotry emerges among Christians when they lose sight of their limitations. Bigotry emerges. Y'all know what bigotry is? (laughs) All right. Bigotry is the attitude. I I just got to thinking, I haven't used that word in a long time. Bigotry is the attitude of arrogance that fundamentally makes you think that you're better than someone else. And you can attach any kind of category you want to it. But it's it's kind of like a primer to discrimination. Does that make some sense? It's a funky attitude. It's a funky attitude. It's the attitude the Pharisees had. He's eating with publicans and tax collectors and sinners. Who else is he going to eat with? (laughs) Right? Right. I mean, we already been told Jesus loved hanging out with human beings. Isn't that what the father said? Isn't that what it was said in Proverbs 8? My delight was with the sons of men and I was my father's delight. So I love hanging out with human beings. So you can't blame him for loving human beings. And they would be the very ones that would put him on the cross. And, and, and you and me, too. It's coming. It's coming. So I love this. Verse 20, verse 21, verse 22. I want to walk through. Um, I'm trying to wrap it up in a few moments. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Right. So the Jews were still operating out. Show me. Show me your authority. Show me your authority. Same thing they were saying to Jesus. Same thing they were saying to John. Same thing they were saying to the apostles. Right. Show me your exousia. Right. Show me your exousia. Give me a sign. I'm I'm almost there. I I love this, too, because this is where I'm getting ready to just deal with demonstration. Right. Give me a Simeon, because they believe that if you had the ability, ability to do a miracle, then you were a legitimate prophet. Right. John didn't do any miracles. He did operate supernaturally. John, the apostle, did no miracles. I got that. I loved that many years ago when God revealed that to me. Everybody coming out to that crazy brother that ate crickets and honey. Everybody came out to to the Jordan, that filthy river Jordan. And and this brother never went to the temple. I mean, he was as uh, exotic and uh, what would you call it today? Huh? Okay. Eccentric. There's another word, too. Uh, There's another word. Anyhow, you would find if you were if you were trapped by orthodoxy, you could not see the glory of God in John. If, if, if your system of religion was too rigid, you couldn't see God in John. 
his whole phenotype, his whole expression, his garb and get up, his swagger, his geography was designed to throw you off. Unless you were hungry for God. This is what we call a parable. So so John was a parable the way he dressed camel's hair, leather girdle, wild honey and locusts. He dwelt in the wilderness. Most people thought he was a demon. Jesus says he was the greatest prophet of all the prophets. You see what we mean by the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God paradoxically? This is amazing, isn't it? Right. I'm always saying, Lord, help me see through and to that person. Help me get past what I see physically because there may be something there. And, and my failure to see through and to them is my own prejudice. Yes, it is. It's my own prejudice. I'm operating out of assumptions, biases, bits, fears, insecurity. And, and I'm not hungry enough to get at the truth because I'm presupposing the truth should be obvious to me. That's good. It's not. It's not. You got to be hungry for truth. You got to be hungry. You got to knock. You got to seek. You got to ask. Lord, is your truth here? Right. All right. Good. For the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. Now, notice what Jesus, what Paul says, verse 23. We're going to walk this through. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Paul says, I don't care anything about your signs and wonders, and I don't even care about your wanting to get wisdom. We're preaching a message that causes everyone to stumble who doesn't understand why this message is preached. Did that make some sense? Right. So this is really interesting because what this does when you have this this resolve, you don't bite the bait of the cultural norms and expectations that seeking signs and wonders makes you spiritual or seeking worldly philosophy makes you wise. Did that make some sense? Right. Because we got both of those. We will always have mystics in the world. Okay. Some of us are mystics, okay? John the Baptist was a little mystic-y too, okay? We always have mystics, but then we also have these hyper-intellectuals that think that they have plumbed down into the depths of wisdom too, and they, all they ever, ever have tapped into really is carnality and demonism and framing it in such complex terms that it appeals to certain people. Does that make sense? Right, and here's how you know, just in case. I got a feeling I need to say it. This is how you know when you're dealing with secular wisdom. Secular wisdom does not appropriately hold God up. That's one. That's one. They will be dubious about God. They will be they will equivocate about God. When you meet dudes that's sharp and they'll call themselves spiritual. You know how y'all meet all these folks that say I'm spiritual. Okay. Right? You you know those people. I'm spiritual. But they 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 are dubious and equivocating about God. Like they won't tag him and really give him the name. You already know that. I already told you that, right? They've got the heebie jeebies around calling him Jesus. Right? He is the universe. How convenient. The universe. The universe. 
I mean, I mean, that's as generic as you can get, right? Like, like you don't want to offend nobody when you go to universe taught me. Okay, I see what you're doing. You're avoiding the direct hit. Right. The other thing about them is that, and here's the other one. We'll pick it up more fully when we get to the gifts of the spirit. They are naturally inclined to immorality. Immorality. The wise men of this world, we can know their wisdom because it doesn't grant them the capacity and integrity of holding the line when it comes to morality. Number two, they don't have a morality that can demonstrate the integrity of their own fortitude when it comes to their wisdom because everything goes with them. Did that make sense? Right. This is one of the ways you can know it's not spiritual. Right. So Aristotle's Socrates, Plato, Socrates, all of these avatars, all of them gave themselves over to the lust of the flesh. Everything that's happening in my world right now, they were advocates of. Did that come home? Right. So when you don't appropriately hold God up as the, as the chief organizing principle, that's Colossians 2.9. Can you pull that up? That's the problem that the Corinthians are engaging in. They don't know how to hold God up. When you don't hold God up, he don't hold you up. So our society is not being held up. So it's unraveling. And it's an unraveling at the spiritual level. It's unraveling at the moral level. And it's unraveling at the ethical level. Morals is why we do a thing. Ethics is how we do it. Did that come home? I'm getting ready to show you guys an article in a moment. It's going to make sense to you. It's going to make sense to you in a moment. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What's the next verse? And you are what? complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. When the Christian upholds the head, the head upholds you. When the Christian upholds the head, the head upholds us. That is the reciprocal relationship between a husband and a wife. Does that make sense? That's the reciprocal relationship between the husband and we're the, we're the bride. He's going to protect us. There's another verse there that I want you to capture before I go on. And it's going to be in Colossians as well. Um, and this one here is where the Colossians had slipped on into that uh, hyper Gnostic paganism. That is where we are today. I promise you that's where we are today, but it would be way too much of a detour to show you that we're dealing with swaths of our government that's wrapped up in neo pagan mysticism and demonism right now. Just put that on the record for you. OK, they're not partying as hard as they're partying without talking to entities. Colossians chapter 2, um, verse 18 and 19. Verse 18, Colossians 2, 18. <clears throat> Let no man beguile you of your reward. Do you see it? In a voluntary humility and worshiping of what? Angels. Right, false angels. Delusions. Right, so Paul said to the Colossians, listen, y'all, you, you got the head of all the aeons and the pantheons of gods. That's Christ. That's what he said. Christ is above all principalities and powers, right? All of your avatars, all of your aeons, all of your false gods, Jesus is above them all. So why would you, having the head, descend down to these lesser deities unless you don't have the head? Did that make some sense? All right, so I do want you to know 
There are entities. There are demons. There are devils. There are dark powers. There are principalities. You have to know that because every, every society is functioning behind the energy of one or the other. No society is functioning without some kind of energia driving it, some entity driving it. Y'all have to know that, okay? And then they have their own wisdom too. We are at the echelon of a whole new revelation with artificial intelligence. I'm not going to go deep down into it, but that's a whole swath we have to ultimately deal with. That's a new level of intelligence, okay? It's here, it's upon us. We have to understand its framework and its workings. You just do, particularly your kids. But here's what Paul says is the worshiping of angels intruding into those things which they have not what? This is what we call postmodern irrational fantasy. So how can you intrude into those things which you have not seen unless you're making it up? These are called lying spirits, by the way, that help you fabricate false realities. And you can do it at such artistic levels as to make money today. You got all kind of gurus online. You got gurus everywhere telling you that they're meeting with Martians and meeting with lizards and meeting with, you know, gila monsters and (laughs) meeting with reptiles. Are y'all hearing that yet? Please. Pastor, what about the reptile people on, on Mars? When you don't uphold the head, every deception is possible. Did that make some sense? And the moment that you let the head go conceptually, you don't hold on to the helmet of salvation. You don't gird up the loins of your mind. You're wide up to the proposition and they're going to drag you into their narrative. And their story is going to be compelling and exciting. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, so this is really, I'm not going to be able to get all the way through this because I want to do some Q&A, but. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility of worshiping angels, intruding into those things he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his own what? Fleshly mind. The mind is a dangerous thing. It can set hell on fire all by itself. Go back to our text. Let me uh, work through this and I'll open the mic a little bit. We're going to try to get home a little early tonight because we have an outstanding program tomorrow that we all want to be rested for. I'm at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 22, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Verse 24, here he is repeating it again. But unto them which are called, both the Jew and the Greek, Christ the power of God and Christ, the what? Wisdom of God. So for us in him dwells all the fullness of wisdom and power. Now, Paul does something here that I just want to call attention to and I'll shut it down. He's arguing that he believes that and that he's determined to make sure that in his communicating to the church, that Jesus will always remain supreme in his efforts to communicate and his efforts to confirm the reality of Christ. Chapter two, verse one. I want to walk through this one briefly and share with you what I mean by demonstration 
And then we're going to we're going to just take a few questions, and get out of here. Chapter two, verse one. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom. Remember, we talked about that. Right. The excellency of speech or of wisdom, the wisdom of words. He didn't come to you in the excellency of speech and wisdom. Now, here's a way to understand that, too. This is really important. This is a, a, a Greek construct that su- asserts. Uh, uh, suggests that he didn't come to you with the goal of bringing you into captivity under him, subordinating you under him by an exercise of sophistry with the kind of power of words that can just bring you into slavery to them. He didn't come to you overpowering you with sophistry. The literal term there means to Huperoke means to have power over you because of your excellent speech. Now, what he's dealing with there is motive. He's saying, I did not intend to overpower you with my words because a lot of people will try to do that. And a lot of people are available to be overpowered by words. May I may I state it just for the record? That's politics. That's politics. Does that make sense? Right. People are ready to be captured by a Saul and a Hithophel, some wise counselor. I just heard it today. Someone asserting that what the world needs is a wise, one single wise counselor. That's what they're hearing. Right. Now they see the deconstruction, they see the chaos, they see the foolishness, they see the babble, babbling, and that's logical to me. Wouldn't that make sense? All right, so quickly you went, no. Quickly you went, no. I went, yes, 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 you need the wise counselor. Yes, you need the wise counselor. Right? right. Does that make sense now? Right. So often we're 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 doing what I said, oppositional rather than integrative. So sometimes what people are craving for is right. It's just the thing that is available to them that will be wrong. And this is also the case when you're dealing with lost people, being able to interpret their motive at its root level versus the way they frame it and express it. Does that make some sense? I'm hungering for. You know, I, 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 I need a revelation. I, I need insight. Yes, you do. We, we all do. It, so, so I'm not going to say, no, you don't need it. Yeah, you do. I do too. I need a revelation. I need a revelator. I need wisdom. I'm dumb. I need a counselor. Don't you? Y'all see what I'm getting at? So these are the bridges that Paul builds to have conversations with people about a right, deeper base motive, but it's framed by a bad worldview. Does that make some sense? Of course it does. All right. So he says, I, brethren, did not come to you with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. That is to say, sharing with you God's testimony. That's what I meant by God's story. See, Paul is married to God now. And Paul's story is tied into God's story. Do you know that? Paul's story is tied into God's story. Paul told it three times in the book of Acts. I love it. Now, I know Paul was a good wife, wasn't he? Everywhere he went, he talked about his God and his master. And he wove the two stories together, didn't he? This is what we're talking about learning how to do. Get your story right and bring your stories together. 
and subsume those stories under God so that you have a common story as couples. Because if God is working on this person over here and that person over there, we should be able to have a communion of dialogue. And when it's breaking down, it's because we haven't figured out how to do that well. That makes sense, right? So we're going to be drilling into that for two weeks. Notice what he says in verse two. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our our five words. Verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Do you see that? Right. So what he's about to do is juxtapose his own personal attributes and characteristic characteristics over against God's wisdom and power. Remember what he said? The gospel is powerful and the gospel is wise. What he says, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear and in much trembling. Do you see that? This is a necessary paradox. What Paul is saying is, I wasn't commending myself to you as some champion Goliath savior. I wasn't coming to you as some sophist who could spellbind you and, and, and whoop-de-doo you with words. I wasn't even coming to you as meeting the requirements of Cosmopolitan, you know, magazine as some tall, dark, handsome brother that could draw you just out of, you know, physical appeal. It's what are you saying? Listen, a shallow world falls for that every time. This is what we're going to be talking about. When we talk about identity, we got to ask ourselves, do we understand identity at the shallow phenotypical level or do we understand identity at the deep core level of who we are? Because some people are so wrapped up in what they look like for them that that is all their identity. See what I'm getting at? That becomes a problem. That becomes a big problem. What Paul is saying is, no, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear and not a little trembling. Man, I trembled a lot. And I told you, go back to Acts chapter 18. And boy, they was having tumults and, and fights and wars. And Paul was truly scared. The Lord had to say in Acts 18, Paul, do not be afraid. I got many people in this place. And I would have said, you do? Where they at? Right, because you know, they, 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 these are a bunch of thugs that's ready to kill me and Jason and Sosthenes. Right? And, well, and so what Paul is reminding them is, I didn't come to you guys like these cats that you want to raise up and make the boss. All these other sophists, all of these other wise men, all of these other hucksters. That wasn't the way I came. And they, they, they hated him for it. I, I need to get to my final point. Look at verse three and then uh, verse four. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse four. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. Do you see it? Of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. You see it? This is compelling. So I'm going to touch on it and stop just because I think I want us to work through that if we can. I remember years ago reading that. I mean, years ago in the early part of my faith saying, Lord, what in the world are you talking about here? What what do you mean by demonstration? Demonstration. The, The term here actually is a legal term. And it means to show and prove and set forth evidence that what you're saying is true or who you are is true. 
It's a courtroom scenario term. It's the idea of setting forth all the necessary. You're in a courtroom, you're fighting the case. And when that when that trial comes up, you're supposed to bring all the evidence you need to justify your claims. Does that make some sense? That's the idea here of demonstrating, demonstrating something. So this is the this is the phraseology. It literally means to openly declare. It's the idea of making sure that they can set before the judgment of people or the judgment of a court that what they said literally was true. Let me run through a few verses to affirm this. This is our this is our term. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful term and it means to show. Acts chapter 222. You're going to read it. We're going to read it a little bit and then I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to come back on on Tuesday and just kind of flush that out for us. Listen to what Paul said. Uh, Peter said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Our subject is Jesus of Nazareth. A man, what? Approved of God. That's our word. A man approved of God. Now, all you got to do now is think about how God approved Jesus. Right. Everywhere he went, God was with him. Everywhere he went, he told the truth. Everywhere he went, he healed. He opened the eyes of the blind. Healed the lame. He raised the dead. He preached impeccable truth. Everywhere he went, he proved himself to be Mashiach, Yeshua, Hashem. Everywhere he went, because God was with him, setting him forth as the authentic article. Does that make some sense? As the authentic article. This is this is what we mean by setting forth the proof. It really has the idea of being a true witness with a true claim to your testimony. And the court is saying, hey, we hear you. That's outstanding. Now prove it. And that's the idea here that Paul is making reference to of the demonstration of the spirit. See, I want to work on that because what Paul is asserting, first and foremost, is the mystery of God in the triune persons. So what what Christianity declared was that God entered into people's lives and changed their lives because of Christ who died for them. Right. And, 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 And now that claim has to be verified. It really does come home close to you and me in this sense. If you and I are Christians, what's the evidence? That's why I want to take the time to work it through. Can I do that? Because, you know, like like Christians don't want to answer this question. I'm telling you. Now, think about this child of God. And somebody can get ready to run the mic. We'll just have a little conversation. You can boast about being a child of God. Tell everybody you love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. And we do. But then when they go, prove it. Are you ready? See? Listen, child of God, you got to be able to do it. You got to be able to do it. You got to be able to make credible your testimony of God. You got to be able to do it. You got the apostles had to do it. Peter was shaky at first, but he got it. Did he get it? Paul came running out the gate. Jesus of Nazareth, stop me on the Damascus road. Knocked me off my high hearts of self-righteousness and blinded me for several days. 
He told me who he was. He told me who I was and he told me what to do. And I have been obedient to him from that day. That's called taking God's story, lining it up with your story and telling the world y'all story. Does that make sense? Now, I haven't actually gotten into demonstration of the spirit at the subjective level. But those of us as Christians would know if there is such thing as a third person and he works energetically in changing our lives radically and demonstratively, then we should be able to show forth the fruits of that grace in our life. Right. What we used to be, what we are becoming and why we used to be and why we are becoming. Am I making some sense? And be able to anchor that in the word of God and demonstrate that that is actually the work of the third person. Right. We, we, we have to be able to prove that the spirit of God exists amongst the community of the people of God in very clear and tangible ways that are not vague and opaque and um, an argument argumentative. That's what I want to do. I want to work on what are those demonstrative tokens of the presence of the spirit of God in the church and in the people of God in the life of any Christian. OK, and you guys can work on that as well. All right. One or two questions. We'll wrap it up. Anybody got any before we shut it down? Got one way back there, way back to know what you what? 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 OK, what? Oh, water. OK, you, you need a you need a bath towel. Who, who got the who got the uh, who got the mic? If nobody has the mic, we're going to shut it down. You got one. Cut, cut it off. Earlier, you said um, that Jesus said, I delight in worshiping with my father's creation. Um, did you have a scripture for that? I know you do. Yeah, of course you do. That's that's Proverbs chapter eight. You can start at verse thirty two through thirty six. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's stand. Um, I'll be need, I'll be leaving the board up cause I'm gonna be using it. All right. If, if there's no other questions, father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for our class tonight. Thank you for those that made it out. Um, we're asking for traveling mercies now as we head home and, uh, and good rest. And, and, uh, if we are free to make it out tomorrow, we're asking that you join us as we talk about the institution that you had ordained for society to be productive and fruitful and, and uh, to grant you glory in the context of relationships. And Lord, we know only you can make that work. We're living in a world that wants to destroy that institute. And we're asking that you help us be uh, a protector of it and a promoter of it. And for those that are seeking to enter into it, we're asking your grace to make them prepared for it and for them to acquire proper spouses that they might join stories together and tell your story together. This we're praying with traveling mercies in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow.